Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 4, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Uh, well, that's interesting. We're, we're putting a new website on you here. Just, I, I was wondering if you were going to even notice. It. You guys, I just write things on a piece of paper, <laughs> and then he reads them no matter what. That's apocryphal. <laughs> like that, that, I was... I was just waiting for it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had a lot of people who have told us that it's a little bit difficult to go to JesusCenteredLife.com and find the podcast section. And so we actually have a domain that goes directly to the podcast. So we're going to start using that. It's paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. And hopefully that'll make it a little bit easier for you if you're trying to find resources. Except on, on your fingers, which will be tired by the time they've typed in that Earl. Paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You might want to bookmark it after that. Oh, yeah. That's right. It'll come right up then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, my name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life. I'm general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible and author of a soon-to-be-released new book in the spring called Spiritual Grit. And I'm with my uh, podcasting partner in crime, the Becky Nader, Becky Hodges. Hi! So we've had a lot of new people joining us here at the, through the start of the year on the podcast, and we thought... It'd be good to to start out with just kind of giving you a level set, a lay of the land here about what you're into. We don't want to assume uh, ever that everyone knows what this podcast is really all about and what the community that it represents is all about. So let's go over some basics. First of all, the, this podcast is brought to you by Lifetree, and we uh, our heart and mission is to um, help others engage more intimately in a relationship with Jesus, to, to know and understand his heart at such a level that they are what I like to say ruined for him forever, that his his heart has conquered your heart. And that's not a tips and techniques uh, approach to stuff. It's not a uh, uh, open the recipe book approach. It's not even a the Bible is a user manual for life approach. It is an approach to this relationship with Jesus that emphasizes the heart, because it's the heart that really captures us at the deepest level and causes us to, when we when we hear Jesus say, in order to find your life, you have to give up your life, that sounds daunting unless you're already captured by his heart, and giving up your life doesn't seem like that big of a deal <laughs> when you're already captured by his heart. So that's really our orientation, and, and the title, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, is what we try to do in every one of these podcasts. We slow down and pay much better attention to, to Jesus, what he says, what he does, so that as we drill down into, into all of who he is, we become captured by him. So we release an episode every week, and this year, in one way or another, over the course of the year, we're going to be focusing on this whole idea of spiritual grit, which is embedded in this book that's coming out in April. And just to give you a sense of what, a quick sense of what spiritual grit is all about, it, all of us have a reservoir of grit you know, resilience and perseverance and, and persevering through tough stuff. All of us have a, a reservoir of that. But what happens when your shallow bucket of perseverance runs out? It doesn't take much, actually, before it, before it does. Well, we look to other outside sources of strength, and 
sometimes those are destructive forces, they're false sources of strength, but spiritual grit is about becoming more deeply and intimately attached to Jesus so that his grit becomes our grit, his strength becomes our strength. And as he is intimately attached to us, he he is like a trainer, growing our strength, our core strength from the inside out. So we're going to explore this whole idea of how do we, how is Jesus growing our core strength, and how can we partner with Him in that, you know, from many different angles throughout the course of this year. And we also have an online community that that is involved in each other's lives. It's an honest and authentic community. There's great questions posted in this community, but I'll let Becky tell you a little bit more about that. So our online community is called the Pigs, um, and the reason why it's called that is because. It's um, from chapter five of Jesus-Centered Life called Living a Pig Life. Um, and the reason why we say that is because a chicken only gives an egg for the meal, but the pig goes all in. And so this is a community that goes all in for each other and also all in um, to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. So if you're listening now um, on an app um, or if you're on a web page, you'll see that there's a description. And if you click to see more, You'll find the links to everything we're talking about today, and, and we do that in every episode, and you'll always find a link to join the pigs. And we encourage you to do that because we are, Rick and I both are personally in that community. We interact with other people, and that community loves to take care of each other, pray for each other, encourage each other, and challenge each other. So it's a great place to join. And if you ask questions... We'll answer them. We will. <laughs> go, go figure. So this month of January, we're focusing on resetting because, well, this is the month of the year that we reset. I, I go to a health club, and it's a cliche, but it happens every year that in early January, I can't find a parking space, and I have to shoehorn in my way into the classes that I normally go to. And I know that it's just like a minor irritation because by the end of January, uh, a quarter of those people won't be there anymore. Uh, it happens every year because it's just human nature. We start off with the best intentions about changing things in our life. We want to grow and change and deal with the things we don't like about our life and pursue the things, the new things in, in life that we'd like to pursue. But again, our bucket of perseverance isn't very deep, <laughs> and you can see it lived out in the in the health club parking lot every year. We need sources of strength that are outside of ourselves, and in the grit research that I reference in my book, what these secular grit researchers found is that one of the keys to people who have grit in life is that they always have a passion for something higher than themselves. Let me say that again. They always have a passion for something higher than themselves. And, you know, that obviously could be almost anything that is higher than you, but the highest passion is a passion for, for God. There's nothing that is higher than that, and therefore the well of strength that you receive from having a passion like that is deeper than any other well. So that's what the book explores, and that's what we're exploring as we think about resetting our lives in, in 2018. We don't want to simply give it a good shot for a week or two, we want real transformation, and that doesn't happen just through our own our own willpower. So if you missed last week, uh, you might want to uh, head back to episode three of this year. It was a pretty important episode in the in the history of this podcast. It's important to kind of get a level set, but you'll want to go back because Becky, in a very vulnerable way, shared some of her story and where her story is leading her to in the near future, and 
it would be good to to track back and hear some of that foundation, because uh, throughout the rest of this month, we're going to continue kind of referencing some of Becky's story and her ongoing story and where, where she's headed as a way to, to get inside of what a reset really looks like. So it's one thing to talk about it rhetorically. It's another thing to plant it in your own life. So today we're going to be continuing with that. And uh, to start out, I, th- I think the, the direction we want to take today is to focus on an aspect of grit that you may not have ever heard before or even thought about before. It's called (laughs) self-differentiation. Self-differentiation. It's a word that I'm now very familiar with because I've been soaking in this concept for years now, but I know from experience that for a lot of people, they have no idea what that means, and it sounds kind of daunting. So Let's talk a little bit about what self-differentiation is and why it is so central to the core personality and, and operation of Jesus in the world. When you study the things he says and does, he is the most self-differentiated person in history. So we'll, we'll uh, kind of sink into what this means a little bit, but there's a quote that I use at the start of chapter 4 in Spiritual Grit. That chapter's uh, titled, Emphasizing Strength of Character Over Accomplishment. And uh, there's a quote that I use at the very start of that chapter that I, that I just love so much. It's by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great poet, and here's what he said. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Let me read that again. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. So the reason why I resonate with this so much is... The great work of, of our adult life is to find and embrace our true identity in Jesus. This is a lifelong journey. And one of the things that makes it quite difficult is we are surrounded by forces, just as Emerson says here, that are trying to make us into something other than who Jesus says we really are. We're just surrounded by forces at work and forces at home, and uh, you can have casual interactions with people during the day that actually impact and have kind of a tailoring impact on your identity. They, they're they molding you into something. And unless you're awake and alive to the fact that there's these forces around you, it's easy to be molded by them. I, I said when Becky and I were talking about this before, that you can—life sometimes feels like a cauldron of critique, especially, by the way, if you have teenagers at home, <laughs> which I do. And normal teenagers are also going through their own path toward differentiation, which means they have to separate their identity from their parents and find their identity as a standalone person. Well, that sounds great on paper, but in practice, it's really painful. It's like a, it's like a, a, a rocket being shot into the space, and, it, and one of the booster rockets blows off of it so that it can get into orbit. Well, that's what teenagers have to do. They have to differentiate um, so that they can go their own way. So that explosion that happens when the when the stage of the rocket goes is, is really painful. And so in my world, you know, it is, it is common for me to feel critiqued on a daily basis for all of the stupid little eccentricities I have and the weird ways that I live my life. All of those are fair game for critique. So it, that's just a, a heightened kind of supercharged version of the cauldron of critique that we live in. Uh, but 
it, unless we are awake and alive to this impact, then it ends up forming us. So self-differentiation is a theme in a book um, by Edwin Friedman called A Failure of Nerve. It is, uh, it is the most life-transforming book I've ever read that is not a Christian book. It, uh, Edwin Friedman was a rabbi and a business consultant and many other things, but the theme of that book is how do you maintain deep, intimate connections with people while maintaining a separation in your identity from those people? That's essentially what self-differentiation means. It means that you, you're able to have rich, deep, uh, mutual relationships, but you don't merge with the other people that you're in relationship with. It's like in, the, in Spiritual Grid, I compare this to my own life, uh, in, in my own marriage, where I, I, I say I'm a recovering purple person, because if I'm red and my wife is blue, I often lived my life merging my identity with hers, and the two became purple for me. And that is a destructive way to live your life. It, it not only destroys something in you, it destroys something in the other person when you live that way. So to be close and intimate with another person and yet maintain your separate identity is what self-differentiation means. And I've mentioned that Jesus is the most self-differentiated person who ever lived. We're going to explore some examples of that in just a minute. But because we're formed by these forces around us, the mirrors around us, it simply just means that we're human beings because we care about uh, what people think about us. So when you're around a person, though, who is self-differentiated, you'll know it, because those, those people are, have a, a little bit of a dangerous edge to them. It's like how C.S. Lewis described Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia as an untamed lion. That's the feeling you have, that, that you're around someone deeply good, but also there's an, a little bit of an edge of, of danger to that person, because, because they have a sense of their separate identity. They're not dependent on you approving of their identity in, in any interaction. And that means that they're free to be themselves. And sometimes that's incredibly powerfully affirming, and sometimes it's incredibly powerfully challenging. So, Becky, you were talking a little bit about your own journey in this uh, differentiation. You're not just talking about this rhetorically. You're dealing with this in yourself and in your, your movement forward in your life. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your background around self-differentiation and what what it is you're exploring right now in your life. Well, self-differentiation, that um, series of words is something I've heard from Rick Lawrence for a few <laughs> years now. And and a lot of people, you you know, you've you've shared this before that everyone's like, could you come up with a different word, Rick? Because <laughs> people don't know what you mean when you say that. It, yeah. And it, it is because it, it is the kind of thing that's so important. It takes a lot of thought and study and and also just allowing Jesus to really kind of come in and do that. And what what I've realized, and, and I have read A Failure of Nerve, I have read Jesus-Centered Life multiple times, and um, so I've definitely been seeping in this idea of what does it look like to be a person who doesn't get so affected by other people's um, opinions and input, who is totally and completely shaped by Jesus. And for the last, you know, for the last seven years, my rock has been in a particular stream. And I shared about what that stream has looked like for the last um, four years. 
in last week's episode. And what you don't realize sometimes until you get out of that stream is how much that stream has ended up chipping things away at you and changing you and that you've been kind of making subtle movements and changes in order to be in that stream. And when you get out of the stream, you suddenly are like, wow, there's a lot that's happened to me. And so part of, of making a part of getting out of what I'm in and, and, and getting back to me is meaning putting myself in a different stream. And that stream um, is Jesus's stream. And Jesus's stream is going to is going to reshape me um, back to the way I was or even uh, into the way that I was always supposed to be. But if you're like me, I grew up in a really opinionated household. (laughs) Um, And I just, you know, there's in my family, everyone has opinions. They're strong and they think that theirs are particularly right. And I am a sensitive person and, and I'm a people pleaser by nature. And so um, I'm I'm often attracted to people who I admire and respect and would let, you know, I think, oh, I want to be more like them. And what I end up doing is I do the same thing. I allow them to shape my identity. And when they don't agree with my choices, it really is hard for me to, I question, well, maybe I'm wrong and I should be doing it like them because I like them and they're better than me. And so what happens is, you realize that you've been living most of your life in a way that everyone else is trying to pull you in a thousand different directions and tell you who you should be. And can I, uh, let me pause there just for a second too. And when you describe relationships, your, your, your circle of relationships, you're really describing also a system, a relational system and all systems gravitate toward sort of continuity uh, re- repetitiveness. So the system wants every part of that system to find its place and to operate out of its expectations. So you'll you'll sense this sort of system working in your life when, for instance, you go back home for Christmas. Oh yes. And all of a sudden, you yes. are a kid again in your in the family system you were growing up in, and you can get quickly molded and formed into that person you used to be. It's amazing how quickly. Yeah you can uh, kind of slip back into these old patterns, and it's because the system is designed for you to fit a certain way in it, and it really does kind of rob you of your own differentiated identity to be in a system that is wanting you to be de- other than what you really are. And you can maintain that while you're you know, home for a few days, but you you'll feel really uncomfortable while it's happening and you'll it be you'll be in your mind you'll be thinking oh my gosh i, I got to get out of here because i already feel myself kind of becoming something that i'm not or or fitting into a system that's not really me but if you're talking about long term you really have to learn how to say no this is who i am and i understand it's different than the way you've been used to me being um, but this is who I am. And, and, it, and it will rarely come as sort of an opportunity to uh, kind of boldly declare it. Uh, it rarely comes that way. What really happens is that you're, you become aware of the forces at work in you. Yep. And in my case, you know, after I've been with my family for a little bit, my wife might say something like, in the day or two after after I've been with my family, she might say something like, wow, you really sound like your dad right now. Or, wow, you, that's something your dad might do. And uh, my first reaction to that is irritation, 
because I don't want to be yeah. that way. And then I might get defensive. Well, I, I no, I'm not being that way because what I'm really saying is, no, that's not who I really am. But we have to find our way back from these encounters. And even more important, what can we be and do in the midst of these encounters? How is Jesus helping us to maintain our differentiated identity in the midst of these forces? Well, it's about awareness. And I, and I also think that it's also about understanding that, like Rick said, we live in a cauldron of critique. And it's hard to go anywhere in this whole world, especially if you're on social media or if you're a parent um, in this day and age. People have opinions from all different places. And what you have to learn how to do is say, thank you so much for your input, and then go do what you're going to do. Because you are a, you are your own self-differentiated person, and it's it's you know, it is, it's actually rare to have people in your life who just always support your choices. They may say, have you prayed about it? And what's the spirit, you know, saying to you, or can I pray with you about this? But, but ultimately when they make, when you make a decision, they stand by you. And, and I have been blessed over the last few years. Um, and, and I don't think I really even realized it until just recently that I have a friend who is unlike any friend I've ever had before because she always just supports what I'm what what I'm thinking and what I think I'm going to do even if it's really like if it's like crazy it's like a crazy idea she's she's like yeah that if if that's what the Lord is telling you to do then you should follow that and it's been amazing to see the confidence that's grown in me um, and making my choices and standing on them just from having one friend who continually supports me and always pushes me back to Jesus, always pushes me back to Jesus, and, and the, other th- the other supports thing that, me. Yeah, the other thing that I think uh, she does in your life, uh, I know who you're talking about, <laughs> the other thing she does in your life is we're, we're often tempted in situations where somebody close to us is going through something to offer advice right away. I mean, it's almost impossible not to advise. I was just thinking the other night, my uh, daughter Lucy is back at college again, and and uh, it kind of th- this is her second semester of her freshman year. It kind of took her off guard that it was so hard to go back to college after a break because she was she had had a really great end of semester experience, la- uh, you know, in the fall, and now she was heading back. And I just don't think she she was ready for how hard this was going to be. So the first night back or the second night back, she FaceTimed us, and and she was uh, she was having a hard time and. I just found myself, and I heard my wife just giving her advice because we we love her so much. We just want to help her through this hardship. And toward the end, uh, Bev said something like, uh, uh, "Lucy, maybe you should just you know think about coming home one of these weekends. You know, maybe that'll help." And and I I said, "I don't think that's the the best thing. That that's not really the answer." And later I realized, oh, even the advice I was giving Lucy. Is in a subtle way communicating to her, well, you're not strong enough to handle this. And I think what I hear in you with your your friendship is that she often communicated the opposite of that. Yeah. You are strong enough to handle this, and I'm here with you. I'm going to go on this journey with you, but I'm not going to do the work for you because I believe in you. And I think she grew up in an atmosphere, a home atmosphere, where that was modeled for her. Yep. So it kind of comes a bit naturally. It's kind of embedded in her, but very few of us grew up in a home like that. Yeah. And so if you didn't grow up in a home like that, and I, I certainly didn't, 
it's it's kind of like learning how to play piano when you're an adult. You, you know, it's we all know it's much easier to learn skills like that when you're a kid. But if you're going to learn piano when you're an adult, that's going to take some real focus and, and intentionality behind it. And and for me, that this journey for, for myself toward self-differentiation has meant just that, that I have to be awake and alive to the things that are going on inside of me. And I am, it is not possible for me to simply play piano well <laughs> as an adult. I make little baby steps, and I've learned some chords, and I've I'm learning my way toward being more differentiated. But uh, it just it strikes me that most people are not like your friend. They, they haven't grown up in an environment like that. So this is going to feel uh, a bit un- unusual, awkward. What do I do? How do I deal with this? It's also challenging to be that kind of friend. And I, you know, I have been really trying to um, do this in my own life with other friends and with my with my family members who if they come to me and want me to solve a problem that I don't do that for them, that I, you know, I push them back to, you know, explaining that they're their own self-differentiated person and that they have to stand by their choices and and make them and that I encourage and support those choices, but that ultimately they have to go do the work. They have to go and, and do it and not um, slip back into fix my problems for me or... um, And and this is when the purple starts. When we start thinking that the work that that person needs to do is actually work we should do for them. That's when the red merges with the blue to form purple. Yep. And, and believe me, I am a recovering purpleaholic. Yep. And me too. I understand exactly how this subtly happens. So what does all this have to do, by the way, with resetting your life? Well, it, we all live in systems. We live in family systems. We live in work relational systems. We're a part of relational systems in our life. And if you start to change in any way, the system is going to resist that because the system has acclimated itself to your role in it. So this is especially true if you begin to change and express those changes in your family system or your family of origin system. Both Bev and I have experienced in very profound ways what it feels like to be different than what your family system expects you to be and what kinds of pressures and forces that family system tries to exert on you to go back to the, uh, what it's used to. So th- these forces are very real. So as you begin to think about growth and change in your life, recognize that the the forces arrayed against that are going to be embedded in the relational systems you're a part of. They will push back against even healthy growth sometimes, because healthy growth sometimes leads to unintended consequences for the people who are like, hooray, do this. Like, for instance, if you have people in your family that have always wanted you to lose weight and, and get more fit, and so you start a new habit of, of going to a health club, for instance, and actually it catches on, and it isn't just a one-month thing, you now have a new aspect of your life. Well, the unintended consequence may be that in your family, oh, they're not here as much as they were before, and oh, they're experiencing something I'm not. And I'm not a part of it anymore. So it's an unintended consequence that the people who are actually cheering you on all of a sudden go, ah, this isn't turning out the way I thought it would. So these are all forces that kind of push back toward you maintaining the role that you've always had. It would be good for us to transition, I think, here into uh, getting some example of this in the life of Jesus. And my, my premise here is that 
Jesus, uh, in every single encounter he had with people, was expressing his self-differentiation. So we're just going to randomly flip open here to the Gospels, just to test this theory. So I flipped open to um, Matthew 15, and we're just going to look for encounters here that Jesus had with people, and then I'll read the encounter, and then Becky and I will talk about where we see Jesus in a, uh, behaving in a self-differentiated way. So um, Matthew 15, just at the very start of it, I'll just read uh, this, this little encounter, and then uh, Becky and I will talk about it a little bit. So some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. So these are some bigwigs, some powerful people arriving from Jerusalem just to see Jesus. And they asked him, here's an interesting, testy um, question, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Whoa, so they're, they're throwing out a big gun here. They've arrived from Jerusalem. It's not, a, it's not just an innocent question, obviously. They are th- uh, firing a shot across his bow. And Jesus replies, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandment of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, Well, sorry, I can't help you for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. Well, in this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right about you when he wrote these words. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. So, Then Jesus called to the crowd to come in here, and he said, listen, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. So this is a little encounter, (laughs) testy encounter, (laughs) Jesus had with the Pharisees. So if we think about this through the lens of self-differentiation, for you, Becky, what, what, what were you thinking as I was reading this story and exploring this encounter that Jesus had? How do you see Jesus behaving in a self-differentiated way here? Well, he is... You know, they're trying to bait him, and he is, in his masterful way, pushing at what is actually going on inside their hearts. Hmm. You know, he they're talking about something that's outside of their body that is, you know, about going through a ritual, and he wants to turn that around, and he wants to push deeper into them and talk to them about what what's really going on deep inside their hearts. Um, when he hmm. talks about honoring me with with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commandments from God. So I think he's just, he comes in and he's like, really, who are you? Who are you really at your core? Hmm. Instead of addressing the physical question of the traditional ceremonial hand-washing. Yeah, and think about even the context, the setting of this. Uh, These are very important people with a lot of power. Really smart. Yeah, who've made a special trip to talk to him, and the first words out of their mouth are a shot across the bow. Now think about yourself in this situation. Think about powerful people in your life, people that have the power to fire you, for instance, people that have the power to cut off relationship that from you. That you feel intimidated by. Yeah, that or that just simply have power. Yeah. And think about how you uh, feel inside in a, in a difficult encounter with those people. I know for me, I'm thinking inside on some level, 
I don't want to upset the apple cart too much here. And they're probably right. They're smarter than I am, so yeah. I should probably listen to them. And they're powerful, so they hold some control in my life, and that makes me feel vulnerable. And so how am I going to respond to them? Well, I'm going to you know, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to try to be as diplomatic as I can be because I want to get out of this unscathed. And yet what we see here with Jesus is he's, his consideration of how to respond to these guys has nothing to do with their perceived power over him or control over him. He's differentiated in that he is not allowing the normal fear that you have when you're in the presence of someone powerful who has control in your life to color or dominate his response to them. Instead, his response is really embedded in the truth about what they're trying to do. He exposes what they're trying to do, and then he contrasts it with the truth of the kingdom of God in a blunt way, and then he lets the chips fall where they may, because he's interested in transforming this encounter, being a transforming presence in this encounter, not being transformed by the forces at work in this encounter. Mm -hmm. That's what differentiation looks like. Now, did you do, you do you flip to another place there, Becky, or should we just go randomly? Should I just, like, I'll close my eyes and just kind of yeah, like do randomly? Yeah, do that. Okay. I'll do the same thing. Okay, I have Mark oh. chapter 3, where oh, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, go ahead and read it. So Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save lives or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. So another encounter with people trying to bait him. So uh, here he is doing something that he's not supposed to do on the Sabbath. It's similar to the previous story where people are upset that he's not following the, the Jewish traditions. Uh, he seems to be flaunting these Jewish traditions. We could talk about that for a second. So one of the things that it's hard to escape when you, when you pay attention to Jesus is how little concern he has for human traditions, the things that we've set up that we elevate as the highest forms of truth and behavior. He, has, he, he either has a disregard for these things or outright disdain for them at times, only in comparison to the higher truth that those things are shadowing right then. So when he has this sort of encounter with these, these powerful people, he's, what, what you have pitted here is the lifelong deformity of a man who's hungering to be healed, and the, the minor tradition of not, quote-unquote, working on the Sabbath, which would include healing. So they've elevated this human tradition above a man's um, freedom from the captivity of his deformity. And Jesus rightly says, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You have not understood the relative importance of these two things. And he also asks the man to come and stand in front of everyone. That He he takes the time to make sure that this is like a very public thing that he does. He could have just handled it privately. And think about this. The last line that you read was that they went away to Herod. 
to the supporters of Herod to start to plot Jesus' death. This is where the plot begins, right here. They are so angry, so upset for what he is doing that they're starting to plot his assassination. Yeah. And, and think about that. Jesus is aware of the impact of what he's doing. He's very aware that what he's doing is causing them to be so angry they intend to create a conspiracy to murder him. Again, think about the force at work in your life if this was a reality for you. Like, you're aware that what you just did is setting in motion a conspiracy. I think about the, the person in—I forget his name right now, but he's uh, in Russia. He's, he was trying to become—trying to get on the ballot to oppose Vladimir Putin in the upcoming Russian election for president. And uh, through a technicality, he's being barred from being on the ballot, but he has so much widespread support around the country that he's continuing to campaign. And I look at him on the news and I think, man, do you want to die? <laughs> Are you aware of the string of people who've been mysteriously died when they have opposed Vladimir Putin? And here you are, the most prominent um, opposer of him that I can remember— what does your wife think about this? What What do you talk about when you're eating dinner at night? And I heard him say, yeah, my wife doesn't like what I'm doing. Um, she, she's concerned for me, as well she should be, because a normal person is aware of the forces at work when you do this, and Jesus is resolute. He's determined to cling to the truth and surface the truth, no matter what those forces at work on him are. So let's flip back to one more example. I had, I had just flipped across the page before to Matthew 16, so let's go back there. Um, I just saw uh, this little encounter that Jesus had with Peter, so let me read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Well, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So here we have this interesting, well-known encounter between Peter and Jesus. And what I find fascinating here is this encounter starts out with this, wow, what a powerful thing Peter does. He's, he proclaims this great truth that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a, it's a blasphemous thing that could cost him his life if it's not true. But Peter, bold Peter, proclaims the truth. And Jesus responds with, you know, wow, Peter, 
You're exactly right, and you know what? You didn't just come up with that. The Spirit of God revealed that to you. And let me tell you what your real name is, Peter. It's Rock, and I'm going to build my church on you. This is all headed in a fantastic direction. And then all of a sudden it takes this nasty turn at the end, because then Jesus gets very plain about what's going to happen to him, and Peter, Peter, bold Peter, says, there's no way I'm letting that happen. And Jesus has to rebuke him. So in the same five-minute window of conversation, Jesus is honoring Peter by telling him his future role in the church, and right after that saying, you are part of the trap set up to keep me from doing what I need to do. Get, get away from me. This is like a, wow, if you can imagine saying this to somebody you have just said something powerful to about their impact, and then you say, and by the way, you're behaving like an ass right now. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the swing that happens in this conversation. What did you see there, Becky? Well, I mean, it's kind of like bipolar Jesus. <laughs> um, this is a, you talk a lot about um, when Jesus names you. That's a big part of the mm-hmm. Jesus-centered life. I, I, actually, I think it's about 50% of it is, you know, who does Jesus say that you are? And this is a moment where Jesus does that. He says, you know, Peter, this is who you are. But even though that's who you are, you're going to do some things that are going to be contrary to who you are. And um, that's going to be a part of your story. And I think that, you know, part of accepting that Jesus sees us in this beautiful way that that goes deep to the heart is that he also knows the the bad stuff that we're going to, the human stuff that we're going to do. And, you know, Peter has many human moments and he still becomes the rock and he still um, is crucified upside down in Jesus's name. Um, despite the fact that he denies him. so And he becomes that largely because he is in the presence of a differentiated person. And this, this encounter is a perfect example, actually, of what I was talking about before, when Edmund Friedman talks about differentiation being the ability to connect deeply with others, but maintain your identity in the midst of that. Mm. So here Jesus is connecting deeply with one of his closest friends, yeah. Uh, telling him some deep and intimate and powerful things about what's what his life is going to become. And yet when that friend does something that is unhealthy and untrue and wrong and thwarting for the mission of Jesus, he is able, even though he's closely connected to Peter, he is able to say, no, that's not my identity, and actually what you're saying right now is not helping me, and you need to stop. It's that ability to do both things at once that Friedman is talking about, and that is such a a kind of an elusive thing for us in life. It's hard for us to imagine actually behaving with people in our life like this, and that's why it's so important to slow down and pay attention to what Jesus is doing here, because through our attachment to him, we get his personality, his his self-differentiated core in us. Mm -hmm. It's just simply a matter of, in our life, more and more yielding to that influence in us, because it takes courage to do it. I wonder if you could talk, Becky, a little bit about from this point in your life to kind of looking into the near and far future for yourself, how this whole stuff about uh, self-differentiation is infecting and, and affecting your way forward. Well, Jesus is not a tame lion, and so <laughs> sometimes when he calls us to do something that you that is absolutely necessary not just for your personal safety or for 
you know, the things that you need in life, the physical things that you need in life, but for the deeper things, the, the really to the heart things, um, when, when there's work to be done there, he, he will sometimes color way outside the lines and he will take daring risks for your life. And he'll ask you to do really tremendous things that seem unconventional to people. And right now my plan that's being revealed to me is unconventional. <laughs> I wrote on here a little unconventional and that's not true. It's unconventional. I have a very unconventional plan and some people probably would even call it irresponsible. It's a daring p- plan and there's definitely some risks involved. I feel a ton of peace about this, but there's a lot of things that if they didn't work out, it would be it would be risky. And it's risky because he wants to come through and say, oh yeah, remember when you took that risk and I just took care of it? Um, and that that part of that is us rebuilding trust. And the majority of the people, especially people who um, interact with me on a very deep and personal level, when they hear this plan, they're like, oh, of course you're going to do that. That's absolutely something you would do. And you're the Beckinator, so that makes complete sense. <laughs> um, but there are definitely people who adore me who have taken pause with my plan and they're people who I look up to. They're people who I admire um, and who I, uh, you know, I really care about what their opinion is in my life. And what I've had to do is I've had to just really get all their their, their answers, you know, questions um, answered. I ha- I've had to sit with them and let them nitpick at my plan and critique my plan. And I've had to just explain in the most loving way that I can why I'm doing it. And what has happened is I've had to do that instead of just being like, yeah, you're right. I won't do it. It's too risky. You're right. Instead of of doing that, which I think is my natural inclination, I have felt like I am just claiming, I'm just reclaiming my own differentiation. And I think it's the first time that I've really been like, yeah, that's what Rick is talking about. What I'm doing right now, that's what is happening in me as I'm starting to feel this self-differentiation where even when somebody says, why are you crazy? This is, this is not safe. You're you know, p- taking all these risks. I am able to go ahead and do that. And, and the reason is because I've got to put myself in a, different, a very different stream. And I've got to let Jesus be that stream, and He has to be in. He has to be in charge now. From here on out, He has to be in charge, and let me just trust that He's got this taken care yeah, of. Yeah, and part of your journey is, and you said this in our last episode, and I think this was really profound: is you're on a journey of a reclamation of trust, and that that trust is, of course, in your relationship with Jesus, but it also spills out and into your relationships with others. These things go both ways. When we when our trust is broken in our relationships, it does affect our trust in Jesus and vice versa. And he's on a journey with you now, a tender, gentle journey to rebuild that trust. And the, the, the things that you're saying could sound on the outside like stubbornness or overconfidence or... Yeah arrogance, or I'm not listening to you, I'm going to just do my thing no matter what. But there's a subtle difference between what those things are, which are are childish. Those are childish responses to directions we feel like we need to go. There's no childishness uh, that I hear in your path forward. It's more of, uh, instead of ignoring um, these forces around you, 
you're embracing the path that he's laying out before you, and you're trying to follow the peace that you have inside, the conviction you have inside about that way forward. Does that then guarantee that this trajectory you're on is going to be an unbroken string of, of uh, success? That No, of course not. These are risky things, just like you just said. Risk involves consequences that we can't quite see when we're standing here, and there will be some of that along the way. But the point here is that, I think, is that you have this settled sense of guidance and direction inside that allows you to hear the input that others have, but not have to follow all of that input if it doesn't agree with the path that you, that you sense that you're on. That sounds like a subtle difference, but that, that is what this looks like in the end. So let's talk a little bit about, as we close here, maybe some things that could help help us take our little baby steps forward into this. Uh, we've kind of hinted at some of these things and even seen an example of some of these things in, in how Jesus related with people, but one of the things I talk about in Spiritual Grit, there's a whole chapter called Doing More Instead of Doing For, and that, uh, an easy way to think about that is that I'm a writer and editor, I have two teenage daughters who have to write essays all the time, and for years they have asked me to give input on their, on their essays, and it would be easier for me to simply edit their essay. This is what I do for a living. I could do it easy-peasy quick. But instead, the path that I've chosen is that whenever they ask for that input, we sit together with their open laptop, and I simply, as we go through their essay, I say, in this area, there's something wrong. In this area, I would say it differently. And I let them do the work to figure out what's wrong and how to write it better. Then I give feedback after they've made their changes. This takes like 10 times longer than if I was editing it, and so I sometimes dread it when I hear them say, oh, Dad, can you look at this with me? But what I've learned, but by the time my daughter Lucy got to college, what she learned is, wow, I can really write well. In comparison to all the people I'm around, I can really write well. And I think it was those years of this kind of feedback that she got that was growing her strength as a writer. Now she doesn't need me to write well. She's, she's learned that strength. So I could have done it for her, but instead I expected her to do more. And that's the essential kind of uh, rhythm we want in our relationships. In general, we want to ask the people in our lives to do more rather than us doing for them. Like, for instance, me giving advice to Lucy about, when, about her struggles in school. Instead, I want to expect more of her. So that's one of the rhythms that we can plant in our life is this sense that it's it's healthier and good to do more to expect people to do more rather than us doing for them. So another way that you can do this is by offering strength instead of undermining it. And so when um, I had a, an example of this in my life, a friend of mine is going is um, you know going through one of those milestone moments and. Milestone moments often come with lots of people having opinions about how you should do those milestone moments. And this person, you know, was upset and um, someone had given some specific feedback that upset her and she wanted me to to fix the problem by going and talking to that other person for her. And, and I had to say, I want you to know that I support what you're doing and I support your ideas and I want you to handle this for yourself. So instead of undermining her strength, I, I gave her strength by supporting her, but then I pushed her back into 
fixing her problem and handling it herself. So that would be an example of how you can offer strength to people instead of undermining it. It's really it. good. One of the things I was going to mention, but I think I'm going to I'm going to hold back too much detail on this. I think we could do a whole podcast episode on this, but the, there's a there's a whole section in Spiritual Grid about the, uh, called the problem of empathy. Um, empathy is almost a universally uh, uh, good thing in our minds, but in the book I make the case that God offers us compassion, but not empathy, yeah. and that that's very it's a controversial thing to say. I know, and I've walked people through this in a face-to-face kind of training situation, and it's been really rich to dialogue with people about this. But the basic idea here that we'll go into in much greater depth in another episode is that empathy attempts to stand in the shoes of another, while compassion stands outside of a person and offers help from outside that person. Empathy is this subtle way of obliterating somebody's boundaries. It doesn't feel like that or sound like that to us, but Jesus did not offer empathy by obliterating our boundaries. He offered compassion and respected our boundaries when he did it. So we'll explore that in a whole episode in the future. Let's do a couple more here, and then we'll close it off. So we've got knowing our emotional triggers and regulating with that awareness. So like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, we know that when we go home for Christmas that there's probably going to be some emotional triggers um, that happen as a, as a result of kind of reconfiguring back into that family environment. And so knowing that that's going to happen, you can make a plan for when this happens, what do I do about it? And how much am I going to endure and when I get back from that environment, how am I going to be hyper aware so that I make sure I, I, di- I didn't fall back into an old pattern? Yeah. And part of that is just being kind of aware of the things that are going on inside of you. This is a, you know, like a steep learning curve for me coming from the, uh, the kind of the background that I've come from, trying to be more present to the, the things that are going on inside of me and acknowledging what's going on inside of me. So th- that leads to our final point, too, that about guarding our personal boundaries when somebody or something attempts to breach them. Uh, in order to understand what's going on, and you have to understand the agitation you feel inside when somebody is violating your boundaries. Uh, for me, sometimes that agitation takes the form of you know, real defensiveness, or I'm standing my ground, almost like a, a, a tantrum that a little kid would have. And really, honestly, that goes back to I'm just still learning myself what it looks like to set these kinds of boundaries. And so sometimes my attempts to do this look like a little kid doing it. A little kid would stamp his feet and say, no, no, I don't want that. And that's how it looks sometimes in me. I'm trying to learn how to relax more about that, but to recognize when my boundary is being pushed or somebody is trying to do work for me that really is my work to do, to, how, to, to in a relaxed way but firm way, guard my boundaries. Then that can be simply listening to a person and not responding, <laughs> or it can be gently saying, I get what you're saying, but what I need right now is, you know, actually your presence and your support, but not your not your advice or you doing the work for me. It's, it's, it's a way of being able to say what you need, and that requires that you be aware that something's happening in you that is kind of resisting this boundary violation. So that's another... Um, rhythm in our lives that can help us to maintain our self-differentiation. So I would encourage you, as you read about Jesus in his encounters, I've said in every encounter he is behaving in a differentiated way, use that as a lens as you read Scripture in, the next, uh, in, this, in this next week. Go to one of the Gospels and just go anywhere, 
and start reading about Jesus and use this as a lens. How is Jesus acting in a differentiated way? Just to start to get your mind around what this looks like in, in Jesus and what it could look like in you. So, gang, thanks for listening again this week. Remember, you can find out more information about everything we talked about here today, but in further detail on painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. So you can find our podcast section there, and it's Season 3, Episode 4. Uh, please uh, send along the link to this episode if you, think, if you know someone in your life that you think would benefit from listening to it. And again, the, the name of the podcast, you can explain to them why it's called this too, as well when you pass on that link. It's called Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and it is a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all of the latest podcasts, and Becky Nader and I will talk to you again next time.